In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world in order that sinners might be made saints through his holy, precious blood. Grace and peace be with you all in his name. The word of God for our meditation this morning is found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So far God's word, even so we pray for his blessing. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Each spring at congregations around our church body and other Lutheran church bodies as well, young people come to the front of the church wearing white robes to make a confession, to make a promise, a vow. Some of you have done that recently here at Berea, and some of you are anticipating doing that shortly in this upcoming spring. Among the vows that they make, among the promises they make, are two very unique ones, vows that I encourage the confirmands to think seriously about. Vows like this. Do you intend to live according to the word of God and in faith, word, and deed remain true to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even to death? Do you intend to continue steadfast in this confession in church and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? I doubt most 14-year-olds have had the experience of thinking about making a promise to be faithful and doing something even unto death. That is, they would rather die than give up one teaching of Scripture or one truth about the triune God. Do you remember making those vows yourself? Even as serious as that promise is, it's made in a comfortable setting, isn't it? Here at Berea, the confirmands come forward. They make a confession in a church that they largely grew up in, surrounded by friends and family. Mom's wiping a tear from her eyes, thinking about when she brought that young one to the baptismal font here, and now that young one's all grown up and making a confession for him or herself. So it's rather easy to make those promises. Our community, our society doesn't care if you come to church on Sunday morning. They might give you a little bit of a hard time about what you believe at your church, but there's no real threat, no physical threat of violence or harm. So most confirmants can make that vow without imagining a real threat of death for holding to their Christian faith. But imagine for the moment the following. Two 24-year-old young men attending Emmanuel Seminary in Eau Claire have given chapel talks recently at Emmanuel. 
And while giving the chapel talk, sitting in the bleachers were some strange faces, looking very serious and very grim. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, sleeping in their dorm room, the police come. They break down the door to their dorm room. They handcuff them, drag them out of their beds, take them down to City Hall in Eau Claire, and make them stand before the city council. And there at the city council in Eau Claire is not just the council men and women, but there's also some very influential church leaders from the city. And they just want to know one thing. Do you really believe what you taught in your chapel? Because what you taught in your chapel isn't what all the other churches are teaching. Do you really believe what you taught in that chapel? Because it sounds pretty hateful. You call sin, sin. And you say the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Those two young men, ten years removed from their own confirmation vows, are suddenly faced with a very real threat, a real life and death moment. They're on trial because of what they believe and what they teach. The two young men are asked if they recant. That is, will they take back what they said in their chapel? They refuse. They say they stand on God's word rather than the traditions of the church. And then they're marched down to Phoenix Park in Eau Claire. And there in Phoenix Park is a large pole that they're tied to. At the base of their feet is stacked firewood. Again, they're asked, do you take back what you believe and taught in that chapel? They refuse a second time. They're given a half hour to really think about the implications of what they're saying. And when they refuse to recant a third time, the fires are lit. And these two young men die because of what they believed and taught. That's hard to imagine, though. That's never going to happen, right? Lutherans are quiet and reserved people. We want to sit in the back pew, and we don't want to bother anybody, and we don't want to be bothered by anybody. There's no real threat to us. And while it's hard to imagine that in America today, that's precisely what happened 500 years ago this year. In 1523, two Augustinian monks in Antwerp, Netherlands, John Esch and Heinrich Vos, had come to hear the pure, free gospel of Jesus Christ. Their fellow monks had traveled to Wittenberg. They had heard Luther teach the word of God, and they had brought the message back of forgiveness that was full and free and theirs through Jesus Christ. And now that whole monastery had begun to teach the same thing. These two young men were dragged from their monastery, brought before the Roman Catholic Council in Antwerp, and demanded that they recant the heresy, quote-unquote, that they had been teaching. They refused. They said, we believe in the Christian church, but not in your church. They said, we are willing to die for the name of Jesus Christ. And for their crime of teaching what the Bible says, on July 1st, 1523, they were burned at the stake. As the fires were lit, they prayed loudly, Lord Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy on us. 
Furthermore, they joyfully sang hymns of praise to God until the smoke suppressed their voices. Johann and Heinrich were the first Lutheran martyrs killed for their faith 500 years ago this year. On this All Saints Sunday or Saints Triumphant Sunday, this is an important thing for all of us to think about. Suffering and dying for our faith. Let's take a closer look at our text and see how it ties in with this discussion. In Revelation chapter 6, we have that scene of heaven that John has before him. There's a scroll with seven seals. Each of those seals is broken by Jesus as Jesus reveals the things that are going to come upon the earth from the whole New Testament period from Pentecost till Jesus coming on the last day. He opens the seals. <coughs> Excuse me. As he opens the seals, John sees there's going to be wars on the earth until Jesus comes again. Opens another seal. There's going to be plagues on the earth until Jesus comes again. Opens another seal. There's going to be economic woes until Jesus comes again. And as Jesus opens this fifth seal, he reveals something else is going to continue until Jesus comes on the last day, and that is martyrdom. Christ believers will continue to be killed because of the word of God. Christ believers like Johann and Heinrich. And as we look at this scene, it presents a peculiar picture. John says that the souls of the martyrs are crying out from beneath the altar. And so for our setting here, our altar, that seems a little strange. But I want you to think in Old Testament terms. When Old Testament believers heard of altars, they heard of the place where sacrifices were made at the temple, where lambs and bulls and goats were killed and burned as a sacrifice to God for sin, where blood was shed in the worship of God. If we think of it in that term, things begin to make a little more sense. Because with these martyrs, blood was shed, lives were ended in the worship of God. John hears the martyrs cry out, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O oh Lord, how long? How long before you do something about our innocent death in following you. Take a look at verse 11. Here is the reply. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The martyrs were told to rest. No more was there any threat of physical harm or violence or violent death. They could rest. And the reason they could rest is because of those white robes they had been giving. In Revelation, the picture of a robe is a picture of one's life. So a robe that would be stained is a robe, a life of sin. A white robe, however is something that's holy and pure and clean. And we hear in Revelation 7 that the white robes have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. 
while I wouldn't recommend doing your laundry like that at home to make something white with, by using blood, we realize the blood being spoken of here is no ordinary blood. John says it's the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, and it cleanses us from all our sin. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross is so holy, so precious, so valuable, so pure, that it washes away all of our sins, just like these martyrs. The martyrs are not in heaven because they earned their way there by dying a martyr's death. No, the martyrs are there because, like you, Jesus has cleansed them from their sin. And they've covered them with his white robe of righteousness. And that gift of salvation they had been given through Jesus Christ was something worth dying for. Therefore, they can rest in this righteousness of Christ that they have been robed with. And so can you. As you read the history of the arrest and the trial of Johann and Heinrich, it seemed so easy. It seemed like the enemies of the gospel could just march right into their seminary, pluck these men, take them to trial, and on trial they even admit that they were going against the church and the state. And then with no resistance, no argument, they're tied to a stake, and they're burned alive. No fighting. No argument. But it's always been that way for Christian martyrs, hasn't it? Think of Stephen. Stephen wasn't fighting against his enemies. He was preaching the word. He was praying for them. David writes in Psalm 44, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's not hard to capture and kill sheep. And it's not hard to capture and kill Christians. And the reason is because of our hope. Our hope is not built in this world and the things of this world. Our hope is built on Christ and our heavenly home. As Christians, we know that no matter what happens to our bodies in this life, Christ is coming again. And he will raise us. And we will be glorified. And we'll be with him forever. John writes of the Christ believer, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The Christian is counted as a sheep for slaughter because the Christian loves Jesus more than he loves his own body. And though the arrest and killing of Johann and Heinrich seems so easy for the enemies of the gospel, we shouldn't be mistaken that God was ignorant of what was being done to his children. The killing of Johann and Heinrich was really an attack on God, an attack on Jesus, an attack on his word. And scripture makes clear that God will not be mocked. Though they have to rest for a little while, the martyrs are assured that God will enact his righteous vengeance on those who killed his children. Think back to Revelation 4, or Genesis 4 we heard earlier on the death of Abel. What did God say about Abel's blood? Cries out to me from the ground. 
It speaks to God. God knows of his innocent death. God will enact vengeance on those who harm his children. Another example of this would be the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus, speaking before it ever happened, said the Romans would surround Jerusalem and destroy it in a most violent manner because of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. Here in Revelation 6, the martyrs are told to rest a little longer until the total number of martyrs is complete. That's a number known only to God. God will only allow a finite number of Christians to be killed for their faith before he brings his righteous vengeance on the earth. But 1523 was a long time ago, right? A lot has changed since 1523. Think of all the advances in our society. Think of what a civilized society we are. Especially when it comes to martyrdom, Christians dying for their faith, right? That doesn't happen today, does it? Well, it's estimated that in the 2,000-year history of the New Testament church, 70 million Christians have died for their faith. It's also estimated that 35 million of those, half of them, died in the 20th century alone. Since the year 2000, over 100,000 Christians are killed each year because of their faith. 100,000. That's over 300 every month. The sheep of Jesus are still being counted as easy targets for enemies of the gospel. As John saw in Revelation 17, the world is drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There may come a day when you, or your children, or your grandchildren are faced with the same threat as Johann and Heinrich. Pray for the strength to stand in that day. As Jesus mentioned in our gospel lesson, the helper will come and he will help you. That's the Holy Spirit. And how does the Spirit work? He promises to come to you through his word, through his sacrament. And so through the word and through the sacrament, be built up for that day of testing and trial. And as you're built up, you can rest. You can rest assured that your sins have been washed away that you've been robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and made fit for heaven. Rest assured that even though the enemies of the gospel may harm you so easily, your Father in heaven is well aware of what is being done to his little lambs, and he will act out his righteous vengeance at the proper time. Furthermore, if you are persecuted for your faith, whether in word or in action, Jesus tells you to rejoice. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God grant that all of us are faithful unto death 
knowing of the death of our Lord, which has secured a crown for us of eternal life. Thanks be to Christ. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.